At Fidelity, value is automatic, starting with the rate you can get on your cash when you open a new retail brokerage account. Learn more at fidelity.com slash trading. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE SIPC. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate, teach, put in context. Call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. All right, how do we make sense of this seesaw of a market that got slammed earlier today, then rebounded in the afternoon. House of pleasure. Closing down 80 points, S&P losing 0.24%, NASDAQ falling 0.58%. I think what we're seeing here is nothing more than a wholesale repricing of stocks. As investors collectively try to bake in all sorts of contradictory possibilities, the repricing ebbs and flows, and you see intraday rallies as people realize that businesses are actually pretty good and the stock market remains the best place to put your money. That's what happens when stocks fall. If only because every other asset class is so unattractive does this occur. It's not because this one's that beautiful. Still, I think we have, have more pain like we experienced this morning, which is why you need to understand what's driving it. So when the pain happens, you you're not paralyzed because we're going to see it again and again. First, there's a whole camp of people who believes that our economy is headed into a recession, probably sooner rather than later. How do I know this? Because at the worst moments of today's session, when the averages were getting hammered and it looked like, well, the whole thing was going to collapse, buyers started standing up in the recession stocks. Think Kimberly Clark, Procter & Gamble. But these are not the kinds of leaders you want to see. They're just exa- exactly the kind of stocks that do well in a slowdown. Later, the strength spread to Adobe, Estee Lauder, not to mention MasterCard, Visa, Nike, as among a host of other stocks. What do all these companies have in common? They're not really dependent on the health of the global economy to make their numbers. Domestic, yes. Global, no. They can make the numbers. Second, there's another camp of investors who are trying to game out the election. Oh, boy. Specifically, this group wants to price in the possibility of Elizabeth Warren presidency. Now, Warren has started to edge out Joe Biden, and she's no fan of certain industries, especially the managed care at once. You know, I could have done another. There's some... Stick with me on this, because... Let me just deal with, I'll deal with the managed care in a second, but it's really rather extraordinary how bad they are. See, for instance, today something happened that I haven't seen in a long time. There was an analyst. And as he came out, a good analyst, and said that he had, the, for the first time in 20 years, he had a buying opportunity, the best he'd seen, Cigna. Okay? I read the piece. I said, how much is Cigna going to be up? This is just clear. It is going to be so good. But then I realized, if Warren's the farm owner, you don't want any exposure to the health insurance space. So what happened? The stock got hammered rather than rallying. Best pick in 20 years. Best pick in 20 years. And look what it does. What can I say? I guess he picked the wrong day to recommend Cigna. It closed down $5.43. If Warren can really pass something like Medicare for all, a very big if, then the managed care companies, you know what? This is going to cease to exist. 
I find that to be unbelievable and not true, but that's what people are thinking. So then why the heck did I tell people of the ActionAlertsPlus.com club that they ought to buy United Health, my favorite of the managed care place? Well, okay. there's a fact, first, I've never seen it cheaper. Then there's the fact that it now actually supports a roughly 2% yield. I've seen that in ages. Then there's the fact that UNH is about as oversold as any stock I can recall, down more than 70 points from its highs. Mostly, though, we don't even know if Senator Warren's going to get the nomination yet, let alone win the presidency. And even if she does win, that doesn't mean she'll have the votes to pass single payer. I think it's too soon to count out UNH. It's too soon to write off Cigna. I think that's wrong. These companies are queening money. Still, that doesn't change the fact that Wall Street is terrified of a Warren presidency. And you can see that fear everywhere. Ever since Warren started pulling away from the PAC, you know, she's now viewed as a putative leader. Very good article about her being in the front today. Um, well, we're seeing aggressive selling in the market's biggest winners. And hear what I'm talking about. Twilio. We had Jeff Lawson on last night. Amazon. Uh, Kramer family fave. Okta. Why? Because if you own these stocks, you know what you have? You have huge gains. And you know what Warren wants to do? She wants to tax those gains. Tax those gains at higher prices than you currently have to pay. Now, again, this is just one possible outcome. The people who own these stocks, they want to ring the register now just in case Elizabeth Warren raises the capital gains rate to the same as the ordinary income rate. Between the recession fears, the need to price and the possibly vote more in White House, I think we could get more swoons like we had this very morning. But hopefully the sellers will exhaust themselves like they did this afternoon. Still, as long as Senator Warren is leading the polls, you're going to keep sell- seeing winners being sold, and they're going to be really sloppy days. And you're going to be asking me on Twitter, Jim, what's wrong with this thing or that thing? And it won't be Micron, which had a quarter that disappointed. It'll be something that's doing really well, like Twilio. Like Twilio. And the answer is... People taking profits. The third thing that gives the bears cover, impeachment. Now, I'm not a political commentator. I never will be. But the hearings on, the, on, on Ukraine today, I, I thought they were pretty brutal, frankly. Suddenly, serious people in the media are talking about Trump like he's toast. I think that's crazy. The votes just aren't there to convict him in the Senate, no matter what he may have done. Still, that won't stop the bears from using the story as a cudgel to beat the stock market lower. It's going to be the narrative. Get used to it. Personally, I'm less interested in the political ramifications. What matters to me is what impeachment means to the legislative agenda. Remember, we just spoke to Speaker Nancy Pelosi last week, and she was sounding very encouraging about the possibility of passing an updated trade agreement with Mexico, Canada, something many businesses I know are counting on to make their earnings estimates for 2020. But I don't know. A week later, maybe it's not going to happen. I don't see it happening. How is Pelosi going to negotiate with a guy she's trying to remove from office? Maybe it's possible. Doesn't it seem unlikely to you? Oh, and of course, if the Chinese smell blood, they're a lot less likely to try to make a trade deal with Trump. They'll wait him out. Of course, they don't know who Senator Warren is, believe me. Now, if the Chinese leadership is reading the same newspapers we're reading, they'll probably be emboldened to wait this president out with the hope that they'll get something somewhat more accommodating in 2020. The final piece of the repricing puzzle of why stock prices, the price to earnings multiple of what will pay for earnings is going down. The IPO market is starting to fall apart. Listen, bankers. Listen, syndicate desk. Your market's falling apart. I've been predicting this was going to happen all year. I'm surprised it took to, to September. I thought it was going to happen in August. We've been overwhelmed by the supply of new deals. It's crushing the market, which is why the latest IPOs have been so ugly. First, there was that smile direct fiasco, which priced at 23 bucks, then closed down 28 percent. 
First day, 28%. Small directors kept getting hammered. It's now less than $13. Then there was that clown show of a WeWork deal, which got postponed because of horrendous corporate governance issues uh, that cost the CEO his job. The SEC should have demanded that, by the way. And today, Peloton. Peloton. Yes, the sports bra hanger for my wife. Priced at $29 and started trading at $27. That's right, open at $27. Why not? It's exactly the kind of stock that this market no longer is interested in. And I'll give you more on that later. It finished at $25.76. And yes, she does also put some of those nice uh, Lululemon pants on it, too. It's not just the Nike sports bra, so I don't want to get, get to the wrong image. Thank you. When you look back at the biggest deals of this IPO cycle, like Lyft and Uber, they are now down so substantially from where they came public that they burn your eyes out. Put it all together. And I can understand why people were eager to sell this morning. Between a possible recession, impeachment, and, of course, an ascension of Democratic candidates perceived as hostile big business because Biden's going down in the polls, Warren going up. Well, you had a lot to worry about. Now, I think that the fears are overblown. But on days like today, at least you know, these are what's driving things lower. This is a repricing of the stock market because of these four things. Remember, when President Clinton got in a peach, that only turned out to be a fabulous buying opportunity. I think the Fed is too savvy to let a recession happen. And even if Elizabeth Warren wins the nomination in the general election, she won't have the votes in the Senate to go full FTR on us. But the IPO spigot, oh, that is the real thing. Until we turn off these deals, just say no to these deals. There's not enough money coming in to soak up the new supply. The bottom line, as long as investors have trouble understanding that President Trump won't be removed from office by a Republican Senate, and Elizabeth Warren isn't some Marxist insurgent out to destroy capitalism, we could have more difficult days like this one. Maybe lots of them. Get used to it. To Sand in North Carolina. To Sand. To Sand? Yes. Yeah. How formidable is Roku? as a streaming competitor against Apple, Google, and Amazon. And is Roku a good investment at these levels? Roku has gone up too far too fast, and it's now in a downtrend. Uh, while I like the company, it, people got carried away as a way to be able to play cord cutting. I want to let it cool off, and I want to see it bottom first. I know, Toussaint, that is not necessarily what you want to hear. I would love to call the bottom on Roku, but that, to me, is a license to kill my reputation. Let's go to Joe in New York. Joe! Hey, hey, Jim. Long-time listener, first-time caller. I own United Technologies, UTX, in my 401k. How should I approach the upcoming company split? With pleasure. Because that company is run by Greg Hayes. He's no nonsense. The company's putting together. The company's splitting. They're both going to be great. We would own them instead of Honeywell. We have Honeywell for uh, the Chapel Trust. You can follow along by joining the ActionLearnsPlus.com club. The only company that I think can hold a candle industrially to Honeywell is UTX. Stay with it. Nice going. Boy, I wish I could recommend that Roku. I like it. But, you know, when these stocks break... Well, it's tough to call the bottom. Look at Micron. We don't know yet. 
at the conference call. All right, now listen, it's not going to be easy to figure out how to price in a recession. I mean, an impeachment. I mean, uh, prospects of Warren presidency, IPO market. This is an erratic market. It's an emotional market. And you got to steal yourself and get used to it and strap yourself to the mass. On Mad Money tonight, Herman Miller and Steelcase are sitting pretty after earnings. But can the rise in both companies continue? I'm going to give you my take. And how much of Peloton's moves today were just spin? I'll tell you if it could be a smooth ride going forward for investors. Plus, take it to the house. I'll check the foundation of the home builders with one of the leading players in the space. May I suggest that you stick with Kramer? Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or Give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. At Fidelity, we work to get you a better price for every trade. See how much we saved investors last year at fidelity.com slash price improvement. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE SIPC. Every now and then, you'll notice some action that doesn't seem to fit with the broader mood of the market, something that cuts against the zeitgeist. Right now, as I mentioned at the top of the show, a lot of investors are worried about a potential recession. Can't get out of our heads. While the U.S. still has a strong consumer economy, there are signs of weakness from the business economy. There's no doubt about it. You can argue about whether or not that softness will eventually spread to the consumer, but it is not in dispute. That's what makes it so bizarre that t- the two big office furniture suppliers, Herman Miller and Steelcase, have seen their stocks catch fire in the last couple of weeks after both companies reported just fantastic earnings. I know they're not big enough maybe to hit your mental radar screen, but listen to me. Look at this. Don't you want this? Look at this. Herman Miller gained 52% for the year. Steelcase is up 24%. And I think both stocks could have a lot more room to run. But that still begs the big question. If we've got to slow down the economy, how the heck are these two office furniture companies performing so well? If business is slowing, it makes no sense. Shouldn't they be getting hurt if corporate executives are pulling in their horns, spending less money? Well, as it turns out, it's a lot more complicated than that. But before I explain, let me set the stage, because I love this kind of story. I want you in on it. You know Herman Miller is the maker of really high-end office furniture, like those ultra-comfy Aeron chairs with amazing lumbar support. I got one. I love it. As for Steelcase, it's the world's leading supplier of office environments. I think furniture and architecture with a reputation for durability and reliability. Never have to throw out a steel case. Now, for most of this year, Herman Miller's been a phenomenal reporter. I mean, just phenomenal performer, putting up a series of excellent quarters. But steel case, okay, it's had a little tougher time. Company gave some suboptimal guidance in March and then reported disappointing quarter in June. And both times the stock did deservedly get hammered. But then last week, Herman Miller and Steelcase each reported spectacular results, and their stocks rocketed higher. Suddenly they're on the same page again. Herman Miller knocked it out of the park, delivering a six cent earnings beat off of a 78 cent basis with better than expected sales up 7.4% year over year. The results were great and the guidance for the next quarter was encouraging. As for Steelcase, 
It gave their, you their first clean beat in a while. The company delivered a seven-cent earnings beat off of a 42-cent basis, higher-than-expected sales, up 14% versus last year. Do you know that they had 9% organic sales growth? If you were wondering why Steelcase did poor, uh, poorly last time around, these numbers made it clear that those sales simply got pushed back. The CEO, James Keynes, called it, and I quote, this is amazing, quote, one of our strongest quarters in the past 20 years, end quote. And just like Herman Miller, the guidance was positive. No wonder the stock folded nearly 10% on the news. So how in the world are these two office furniture companies putting up such amazing numbers with all the gloom that we have to put up with all the time? How's that possible? Should this be a hostile environment for them? Okay, when you go through their conference calls, two things really stand out. First and foremost, even if you're worried about a slowdown in enterprise capital spending, that's not really what these companies are levered to. As they both pointed out, fancy office furniture is tied much more, much more tightly to the labor market. When employment's so strong that there's some real labor shortages, businesses are forced to shell lots of money to make the workspaces more attractive to prospective employees. Harder to hire. In other words, a tight labor market means workers have more leverage. And when workers have more leverage, they get the nice office chairs with lumbar support. And I want you to listen to Andy Owen the CEO of Herman Miller, when she was asked if the, she's got to come on the show, listen to this, if the macro situation is hurting her business, she responded, we're still hearing that the war for talent is really contributing to people looking at their workspaces, people understanding how they can provide places that people want to work. We aren't seeing a slowdown there. End quote. It's not about the macro people. It's about the red hot labor market. Do you ever hear that? You see, this is what I'm talking about. You got to be on the conference calls, not the big macro numbers about the GDP, what the Fed's thinking. This is real. This is what you make your decisions on. Let me give you what James Keene at Steelcase is saying. Why is the industry growing? And why are we growing even faster? Customers are really seeing the connection between their business challenges and their workplace. Yes, it's related to work for talent. And it's also related to innovation, the adoption of new work processes like Agile and other efforts to improve workplace productivity, end quote. King goes on to point out that customer visits to his headquarters in Grand Rapids are up versus last year. And Steelcase has a larger pipeline of opportunities. See, you probably don't know this man, and I totally get that. I regard him as more important than any one of these federal people that I hear. This is real world. This is what determines our economy. Long story short, as long as employment stays strong, these high-end office furniture plays are in great shape. The second thing that jumped out at me when I studied these two, the trade war is hurting them a lot less than you might expect. One of the main drags on Herman Miller and Steelcase was the fear that they'd be disproportionately hit by the tariffs, as they do a lot of their sourcing from China. But it turns out that falling commodity prices and better execution have more than offset the damage from the tariffs. Jeffrey Stutz, the CFO of Herman Miller, noted that their gross margin, what they make after the cost of goods sold, was up nicely thanks to higher production volumes, favorable price realizations, and lower steel costs, along with the company's ongoing operational improvements. The trade war just isn't hurting them like we thought it would. Same thing at Steelcase. As David Sylvester, the CFO there, said, I'll start with the tariffs because they're impacting us, but they're not impacting us dramatically. And really, our teams have, have worked very hard to offset much of that impact, whether it's through negotiating with our supply chains, adjusting our supply chains, taking price actions to offset it, end quote. Meanwhile, Steel case is getting a big boost from the decline in steel. Put it all together and you've got a pair of stocks that are levered to the tight job market in the United States and they're not taking da- damage and nearly as much damage from the trade war as Wall Street expected. In fact, in a reverse way, the tariffs might be helping because they're contributing to the worldwide slowdown that's driving down commodity prices, 
giving Herman Miller and Steelcase lower raw costs. Best of all, both these stocks are still, after these runs, absurdly cheap. Okay, selling for about 12 times next year's earnings estimates. In a market that's increasingly wary of high-flying stocks with nosebleed valuations, these two value plays could be just what the doctor ordered. This is the opposite of Peloton. It's the opposite of Smile Direct. The bottom line, as long as the job market stays strong, companies will keep paying up to make their workspaces more attractive and entice the workers they need. And that's why I think that Herman Miller and Steelcase, as boring as they are, are both worth buying. Even after last week's explosive rallies, I bet they can go higher still. Stick with Kramer. They built a devoted pack of riders by moving the fiercest workouts from the gym to wherever you choose to break a sweat. Now the training wheels are coming off. Should investors pump the handbrake on Peloton? Or will this IPO have the wind at its back? Let's face it, we've reached the point in the IPO cycle where all the best merchandise has already been taken public. So the bankers keep pushing lower quality companies at undeservedly high prices without any real regard for the buyers. Buyers like perhaps you. Sometimes it's so obvious that the deal ends up getting pulled or at least postponed, like we saw with WeWork earlier this week. And then tonight, Endeavor, a powerhouse entertainment agency, full disclosure, my agent, pulled its deal this very evening. So why don't we do a post-mortem on the Peloton deal so people won't get hurt again? Peloton Interactive, PTON, is a company that makes connected exercise equipment. Every one of these things has a screen where you can stream everything from entertainment to exercise classes right in the comfort of your home. The problem with this busted deal, though, is it went immediately below its IPO price, and then it kept going lower. Why? Timing. Peloton's got great revenue growth, but no earnings. As recently as three or four months ago, Wall Street might have lapped it up. Now, though, many money managers that are, want companies only that are profitable. That's how you end up with a situation where retail demand for Peloton was strong. But the institutional demand, which once again profitable companies, was nil at 29, with the IPO price. So institutional sellers were more than happy to boot the stock out to wherever they could find, which is why it opened below the price. Hence the failed opening where the big boys dumped the stock take their lumps while the little guys get stuck holding the $29 bag, now retailing at 25 It was all too predictable, which is why I predicted it in Squawk on the Street this morning. All I can say is it, it could have been a lot worse. Just ask the people who bought Smile Direct when it came public at 23 bucks. The stock's down, down more than 10 bucks from that level. So is there a level where it makes sense to own Peloton? Look, the economy is a clever uh, uh, The company's got, it, it's got a great gimmick, I have to admit. People wouldn't say it's a gimmick, it's a skill set. Using digital technology to create a more compelling exercise experience. In addition to selling machines, they also sell subscriptions that give you access to all sorts of digital fitness classes. Now, regular viewers know that I am a big fan of both the fitness industry and the subscription economy. And when you look at the Peloton Financials, they're very impressive. The company now has 511,000 connected fitness subscribers. That's up from 245,000 a year ago and less than 108,000 two years ago. In a more normal, less saturated with new deals market, I am telling you, we would have loved this company even better. In 2019 fiscal year, which ended in June, Peloton posted 110% revenue growth. And that was a terrific acceleration from 99% in 2018. 
Investors typically worship at the order of accelerated revenue growth. However, if you look at the quarter-by-quarter figures, Peloton's revenue growth peaked at 122% in the first quarter of the calendar year. And that slowed to 109% in the most recent quarter. Still, the first quarter is by far the most important. That's when you get all those New Year's resolutions. So maybe the deceleration doesn't even matter. What else? You can see that Peloton is trying to shift from a hardware maker with a service kicker into more of a razor razor blade business model. In 2017, hardware made up 84% of their total sales. In 2019, it's down to 79%, with subscription revenue rising from 15 to 20% over the same period. You know I am a big proponent of the subscription economy, but it'll take a long time for Peloton to reach a point where the razor blades matter more than the razors, especially if their hardware sales keep accelerating. That's a high-quality problem. All right, how about the negatives? Let's see, one objection you hear is uh, around a lot, uh, a, a lot of the, that Peloton's costs that are, are simply out of control. They're spending too much. The cost of revenue for the hardware business increased by 110% in the latest fiscal year, and the cost of revenues for the services businesses was even worse. It was up 127%, in part because they needed to pay royalties on all the music they licensed for the streaming content. Who wants to exercise without music? All told, Peloton's sales and marketing spending rose by 114%, even faster than their revenue growth. They are heavy advertisers. The ads are quite compelling. But that's too high a marketing quotient for most institutional investors to stomach, at least in this new, more skeptical environment. Then there are the earnings, or more accurately, the lack thereof. Peloton's money losing operation. It's the latest fiscal year. They had $202 million in losses from operations, and their margins seem to be going in the wrong direction, with the operating margin down from negative 11% in 2018 to negative 22% in 2019. However, most of that was stock-based compensation. When you exclude that and you look at the adjusted EBITDA margins, most important metric here, they only declined from negative 7% to negative 7.8%. We would have overlooked that six months ago. We wouldn't have cared. We wanted growth at any price. But those days are over. Now this market wants okay growth with good profits, not to mention some hefty dividends and big buybacks. That is the exact opposite of Peloton. And when you look at this thing through a more critical lens, the bear thesis practically writes itself. Think about what this company really does. Even better, take a look at this image from the second page of Peloton's prospectus. And I quote, we are a technology, media, software, product, experience, fitness, design, retail, apparel, logistics company, end quote. You know, there's an old adage in football. If you have two quarterbacks, you don't have one. Meaning, if you don't know for sure who to play at your starting quarterback, you don't have any good options. I think the same goes for corporations. If you have 10 buzzwords to describe your business, you don't have one. This reminds me of when Snap, the parent of Snapchat, came public and tried to call itself a camera company. No. Snap your social media platform. Similarly, while Peloton's pitching itself as a family of businesses with huge cross-selling opportunities, at the end of the day, they make their money selling fitness machines with screens attached and subscriptions to exercise videos. And this is what really worries me. When it comes to the workout business, Peloton's got some very serious competition. Whether we're talking about the existing gym chains like Planet Fitness, which you don't really like if it's going down a lot, the Lifetime, now private, Equinox, or in-person exercise uh, classes like uh, SoulCycle. Again, uh, you can't own shares in that. Uh, Or personal trainers, or even something like Fitbit. To say nothing of other companies that make exercise machines. I know they vehemently disagree with that characterization of themselves. They think they're in the business of making home entertainment machines that make you look great for a small monthly fee, the opposite of showing up at a gym that you don't want to go to. As for the subscription side, there are already half a dozen apps that provide a very similar service, and most of them are a heck of a lot cheaper 
than Pelotons without the huge upfront cost of actually buying a new treadmill bike, a new stationary bike or treadmill. Although I have to admit, they're attractive. There are a couple other major negatives here. For one thing, this is another IPO where the public shareholders will have hardly any voting rights. There's a dual class structure that puts all the power in the hands of insiders. Hey, look, the market rebelled against that kind of thing with WeWork. Once again, I think investors are sick of this kind of stuff. The other big problem, Peloton's being sued by a group of musical publishers who allege that the company's using music their artists own without permission. Peloton seems to recognize this is going to cost them. Although, at this point, we don't know how much. Still, even with these negatives, again, I'd be happy to recommend this stock at the right valuation. There aren't many companies with 100% plus revenue growth that's accelerating. Put e- uh, but even after pulling back today, Peloton has a $7 billion market cap, which means it's selling for roughly five times 2020 sales estimates. Too rich for an entertainment in-home health machine. Now, it's hard to find a good comparison here. Peloton's growing like a high-flying cloud computing stock like ZoomVideo, which trades at 37 times 2020 sales. But it's a very different industry, and Zoom is down big from its highs. Again, I think Peloton may have missed its chance. It's just not the kind of stock this market wants. It's been left behind by the Wall Street fashion show, people. Unless the investment bankers start pricing these IPOs a lot lower, institutional investors will continue to greet them with the skepticism that Peloton got today. It will become the norm, not the exception. The bottom line, this is not the kind of market where you want to rush into a newly minted growth stock like Peloton. If you think this stock is enticing, just be patient. I'm betting you'll get a better price. Hey, maybe somewhere between 17 and 23. Until then, wait, because we're in a treacherous market for fast-growing companies with big losses. Until that mindset changes, Peloton will trade like a money-losing extra-cycle company with no soul. In other words, stay away. Francis! In Arizona, Francis. Hello, Mr. Kramer. Uh, Pennsylvania, booyah to you. Yeah, man. Big game tonight, booyah. What's up? Well, I have a question. In light of Lululemon's recent earnings, will they still be able to spin straw into gold? I thought that quarter was fabulous. I think management is terrific. I think we're still early on. I think it's a high multiple stock. I think you're going to be able to get it cheaper than it is. But I was blown away. That was one of the best conference calls of the season, along with Nike. Those are the two best. I want you to be careful out there. Particularly because now we've got this Endeavor pull, but people are saying bad things about Micron sending all chips down. Things are a little convoluted for the moment. All right, now you have the skinny on Peloton. It's not a bad story, but not these levels. Not these levels. Hey, much more mad money ahead. Is the housing market starting to get a lift at last from lower mortgage rates? I'm talking to the CEO of Taylor Morrison Homes, one of the largest in the country, to see what she's thinking. Then, I'm revealing two stocks that I know which way the wind blows. I'll tell you the names and what they're signaling. And all your calls, rapid fire, on tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Tomorrow. Kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. Can we have one agency? Let's have one agency. Let's, let's amalgamate them. That is, that is them. one of the worries that's that there's overlap. Have one agency. Yeah. I mean, do that's all they have to do is investigate Facebook? Well, why don't we amalgamate them? Why don't we have a czar? It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern.
This is a confusing and often downbeat market, but there are some real bright spots, like domestic housing. Ever since long-term interest rates plummeted over the summer, you know what? This industry has really caught fire, powered by cheaper mortgages. Housing starts reaching a 12-year high last month. Now, that's a big deal, people. So it's no wonder the home builders have caught fire. So let's just take a look at Taylor Morrison, which has a presence across Arizona, California, Colorado, Florida, Georgia, Illinois, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Texas. This home builder is one of our favorites, and it's seen its stock rally 62% year-to-date. And it just got a major boost last week when the company announced it had seen a, a ludicrously high 30% increase in home orders in July and August, even better than KB Homes, which you know I like, that we'll talk about later. Can these stocks keep climbing? Well, let's take a closer look with Cheryl Palmer. She's the chairman and CEO of Taylor Morrison. Get a better sense of how our company's doing and where it's headed. Ms. Palmer, welcome back to Bad Money. Good so to good see you. Thank well, you. Thank you. You are hitting on all cylinders, and a lot of it is uh, unexpected. Unexpected because people felt that with the changes in salt, that people wouldn't be buying homes. Uh, And people also are uh, shocked that there is such a big demand for homes immediately for for renting and not just for living. So tell us about these trends because they, they are surprising to people. Well, it's quite a good time, and I understand that there's been a lot of movement with interest rates, but we're, we're really in the largest expansion we've really seen in recorded history, right? And, and things are looking good, but it's no surprise if you think about household net incomes are growing, people are doing better with their real estate, savings are up, incomes are moving up, people are feeling good, and that confidence is absolutely showing in the real estate market. And that's not even to mention the demographic tailwinds we have with how the millennials are feeling about buying their first or second house, and certainly the boomers. And you've got a terrific price point for your homes that is good for both starter and for move up, right? We do. We we really serve all consumer groups, and we, we have focused in strategically on that barbell of those millennials and the boomers. I mean, that represents, you know, 160 million plus folks. You know, it's interesting, Jim, because everyone talks about the millennials like there's this one group of people and they're not buying. We're just not finding that. In fact, we're finding exactly the opposite. They're quite qualified. We actually take the millennials, we split them in half and say there's the older millennials and the younger millennials. So what would be the cutoff there? So 30 plus, that's when we're seeing probably 75% of our millennials are buying their second house, the older millennials, and the ones under 35, about 45% of them are buying their second house. The average age of a millennial wanting to buy is at 32, 33. And that's generally directed through marriage, right. more important children. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, they're quite excited. They want exactly what they grew up with. Well, well see, that's very different. You know that. We had felt that, that millennials were a breed apart, that they would always live with their parents or maybe they'd always rent. It just turned, it got a little delayed. But they are like they, us. They absolutely, and they're not running. No from one else us. is saying that except well, but for you. That's be- oh, that's too bad. All right. <laughs> and I, I mean, you have data. I and we spent a lot of time understanding our customers. About a third of our buyers are millennials, and if I look at what that was five years ago, that's. 20% of our buyers. So we've seen the movement consisting with the aging. 
And, you know, if we were to chart, Jim, the last 30 years of home ownership, every two, three years, we would see that average age of home ownership move up. So it shouldn't be surprising that this largest cohort is doing exactly the same thing. Then let me ask you, our coverage, everybody's coverage is filled with gloom, not our coverage. The New York Times is gloomy and the Wall Street Journal got gloom. I listen to you, and not only do I think that gloom is inappropriate, but that maybe we're in kind of a halcyon, really great moment in the home building business. Low rates, costs haven't gone up that much. I know there's labor issues, but you're holding them under control. We finally have a lot of buyers, and there's different kinds of buyers. Buyers that will be renters, so to speak, but all sorts of different price points. This is good. This is good. The affordability issues are real market by market, but not as real as I think sometimes the media portrays. And I say that, Jim, because once again, when we look at our consumers, even with our first-time buyers, they can afford a lot more of a house. Part of that is low interest rate. Right. So they could either afford a higher interest rate, somewhere to the tune of three to 500 basis points on average, or a much bigger house. So I think the consumer's changing their relationship okay. Okay. with home ownership, which is a good thing. And that's why we're seeing increases in their savings. But as you said it, we're just now seeing income growth. Right. Interest rates are our friend. We have no supply. It's a really good time. Okay, well, this means so many people come on air and they say, listen, doesn't, low interest rates don't matter. doesn't matter where the Fed cuts rates. I look at home equity loans. If the Fed cuts rates, those get better. I know okay. the adjustables. I'm still paying too much for my adjustable. I think it's very clear from your numbers that low interest rates matter tremendously and that the people who say they don't just haven't talked to you and done the work. I think, unfortunately, we get locked in on these sound bites. And I think Please. we have to get under the sound bites and let the data talk. If the information tells us, that's what we use. We talk to our customers right. so many different ways. And it's about building what we know they want. You know what? The facts are a breath of fresh air. Well, good. All right. Thank you so much. Congratulations on great numbers, great quarter, great things that you've done for shareholders. That's Cheryl Palmer. She's the chairman CEO of Taylor Morrison, one we have liked, I don't know, from the low 20s. Look at this thing go. Man, money's back after the break. It is time. It is time for the lightning and then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Skate? Guys, I'm the lightning round. Let's start with Jim in Connecticut. Jim! Jim, it's another Jim calling. No relation. I'm an Axiler member. Yes. And it's been extremely helpful. Thank you, buddy. Good. AMD, I do not like the pin action. Oh, you are right. You are right. Listen to me. Mike Carter put a number today. Nobody really likes it. That's going to send AMD down. I think AMD's doing better than Micron. But, Jim, you know how it goes. We write about it all the time. FractionLearnsPlus.com club members. These all trade together, which is why we have taken our cash position up so high. You'll get a chance to buy AMD lower. Mark in New York. Mark. Hey, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. I uh, want to thank you. Great show. And, thank you. Uh, Wanted to ask you in lieu of uh, 5G and the China scenario. That's yeah. What's that? Did did we lose? Uh... Oh, let's go to Trevor in Wisconsin. Trevor. Booyah! Booyah! What's up, Jim? All right, what's happening? My question is regarding Activision. Uh, stock's been down over 50% in the last year. However, it seems to be relatively stable in recent months. 
Um, when you take into consideration, they got some exciting product releases, specifically with the new Call of Duty that's going to be the first game ever to be introducing cross-console compatibility to the gaming world. Mm-hmm. Do you think we're looking for a buy here? Um, I think the stock is what I would call an up stock. That's really not why I like to recommend things. I am much closer to take to Interactive, and on any dip, I think what Strauss Zelnick is doing is better than what's going on at Activision. Betty in Michigan. Betty! Hi, Jim. Uh, Booyah. Thanks Booyah. for taking my call. Of course. Uh, Lyft, should, is it time to buy? No, not yet. I do believe that, you know, this company, it opened in, in the 80s. It's all the way down. People have nothing but losses on it, so it might become literally a tax loss play between year and year end. Let's go to Daryl in Tennessee, please. Daryl. Hey, first, uh, first time, long time. Uh, Jim, G-E-L, Genesis Energy. Very big yield, but a suspicious yield. I think it's too high. It makes me worried. And that whole complex, I do not like. I do not like at all. Dave in New York. Dave. Booyah, Jim. Booyah, Dave. My question is about Realogy, ticker symbol R-L-G-Y. The chart was a disaster the past couple years, but uh, last month they announced a partnership with Amazon, and since then the chart's been looking a little better. I'm wondering, is now a good time to get in? Well, look, it's certainly, what can I say? It's it's cheap. Uh, It's got a yield that I actually believe it can support. I do believe when you're buying something like that, a quality company at six times earnings, it might be worth it, but they do have a lot of debt. Understand, a stock down 56% has got a lot of sellers in it still because of tax law selling. I'm not going to object to buying a stake in Realogy, but it is speculative. Let's take one more. Let's go to Steve in Pennsylvania. Steve! How you doing, Jim? I'm good. How about you? Oh, I'm okay. Um, I got a question. You guys have been talking about Cronus a lot. Right. And the only thing I missed is when's the time to buy? Well, you know what? I felt that uh, after GW Pharma, the shorts took a big run at it. I thought that Gover did a good job on the show. The stock is now up six when he came on. Kronos is at nine. I think you can speculate and buy a piece. And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Even on a not-so-hot day, we have some very powerful positive tailwinds. You just have to know where to look for them. For example, every time I see an earnings report from a company that has zero exposure to China, I get excited because many of these companies have tailwinds that are totally separate from the broader economy, the so-called macro that's talked about endlessly as captured by surveys and sentiment and blather from the Federal Reserve. But not everybody's hostage to the macro. Some industries have their own tailwinds. And you can still make a lot of money simply by identifying these trends and knowing which way the wind blows. We mentioned Steelcase and Herman Miller before. Now I want you to consider the cases of KB Homes and a company called J-Bill. Here are two companies I've always been very fond of, even though they've never been market darlings compared to their peers. KB Homes is, in fact, the most hated of the home builders, thanks to its very high debt position. Yet the underdog stock is now up more than 71% for the year. That's even better than Taylor Morrison, because it's positioned itself as a major player in the hottest part of the housing market, relatively inexpensive starter homes. As for Jabil, this is a gigantic contract manufacturer, a company that makes things for other businesses. Whether they're talking about healthcare, consumer packaged goods, e-commerce, 5G, or energy, or retail. When you order something online, there's a good chance J-Bill helped you with the packaging. You need some hardware for 5G wireless? J-Bill will have first dibs on manufacturing. Healthcare on the wrist? J-Bill. 
Despite all the doom and gloom about the broader economy, the truth is that our domestic economy, away from the world trade issue, is very healthy. And that's good news for these two companies. And by the way, this is not necessarily going to be affected by the Fed. It's not going to be because the Fed wants to cut rates. It's not going to be affected by even the impeachment stuff. I want you to listen to this quote from Jeffrey Metzger. He's the chairman and CEO of KBH. He says, market conditions remain favorable, supported by low mortgage rate, interest rates, strong economic growth, high consumer confidence, and positive demographic trends. While demand is healthy, supply continues to be insufficient to meet home buyers' needs, particularly at affordable price points where we operate, which is our key element of our success. Simple, precise, making money for you. Given that KB Homes saw 24% net order growth and the housing glut from earlier in the year has now run off. Remember that that was when everyone was so scared of these stocks. We told you, please don't be scared of them. Well, you've got higher gross margins and more runway than I've seen from the home builders in ages. What's really in play is affordability for young families. And that's going to stay because the mortgage rates are so low. All right, how about J-Bill? They, uh, think about what they manufacture. 5G is in its infancy. The Internet of Things is exploding. The need for less packaging to please environment, environmentalists is now a must. Those themes all play to J-Bill's strengths. Put it all together, and I think that too many of these windbags who opine about the Fed are missing the big picture. Housing is 10% of the economy, and it punches above its weight. A bull market in housing can drive the whole economy even when the auto industry is floundering like it is now. As for J-Bill assembling products that they've designed by other companies on a drawing board, that's only accelerating. In other words, the tailwinds from the economy right now triumph over the headwinds that fill the headlines. But you'd have to read the conference calls from these two former ne'er-do-wells to know that. Both J-Bill and KB Homes are very good, very, very well run, and they got no flaws in them. Both are easy to understand. They're not beyond meat, which trades on news of contracts like the tentative one with McDonald's. And they're not Peloton, today's bus, which traded off sales, not earnings. They're not Micron, which is going down after the close because of worries about gross margin. They're simple, easy stories. No, J-Bill and KB Homes. They're boring. They're prosaic American companies. Besides the consumer packaged goods plays on a daily today, that's what works, people. I don't want you overthinking this. As I keep saying, you do not need a weatherman to know which way the tailwind blows. Stick with me. Pricing in Warren, pricing in recession, pricing in impeachment. All happening right now. Like I said, it's always a bull market summer. I'm trying to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Tim Kramer, and we'll see you tomorrow. At Fidelity, online U.S. stock and ETF trades are commission-free. $0 commission for online retail Fidelity account U.S. equity and ETF trades. Sell order assessment fee in some account types and securities excluded. See Fidelity.com slash commissions. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE SIPC.